0: This podcast is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables. And during these uncertain times, SunGrow is committed to protecting its employees and continuing to reliably serve its customers around the world. SunGrow has also leveraged its extensive network across the U.S. to distribute face masks to communities in need. Learn more about SunGrow's work at sungrowpower.com. Gia Schneider and her brother started a hydropower company based on a turbine their father designed. And after more than a decade and a half of R&D, pilots, and a one-off project for Apple, the company is bringing in millions for the next level of scale.
1: Our objectives have actually not wavered. and But they haven't wavered because of rigid adherence to dogma. They have not wavered because we check in consistently about, is this the right problem to solve?
0: Welcome to What It Takes, an interview series produced by Powerhouse and Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey. In this series, we hear from founders and executives at the most influential clean energy companies, their backgrounds, their passions, their struggles, their deals, their management philosophies, their near-death experiences. This week, Powerhouse CEO Emily Kirsch talks with Gia Schneider, the co-founder and CEO of Natel Energy. Natal is commercializing a turbine for low-head hydro applications. It's placed at places like old dams, irrigation canals, and run-of-river projects. And it's designed to protect wildlife and drastically cut the ecological impact of hydropower. The original design came from Gia's father, who started working on low-flow turbines back in the 70s. Gia has a long history in energy herself. She worked at Constellation Energy and in Accenture's utility practice. She started the energy and carbon trading desks at Credit Suisse. And in 2009, she launched Nattel with her brother Abe. In March, Nattel closed an $11 million round led by Schneider Electric and Breakthrough Energy Ventures just before the economy shut down. In this episode, Emily talks with Gia about starting a company with her family, how to balance short-term tech development and long-term deployment goals, and how coronavirus could impact the next phase of growth. Normally, we record these conversations at Powerhouse's headquarters in Oakland, California in front of a live audience. We obviously can't do that anymore, so you are listening to a live interview recorded over Zoom in front of a bunch of people who are watching from their houses. No applause like normal, unfortunately, but here is Emily Kirsch introducing Gia Schneider.
2: Um,
1: Yeah, welcome. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited, yeah.
2: I'm excited too, I'm actually more nervous about this than I am when there's a live audience of the 80 people that we cram into our office for these live recordings. Like somehow this feels, even though no one's here, this I feel yeah, more nervous well, about it's this because like you know a little of the technology juggling and then uh, yeah yeah exactly. I'm gonna knock over this mic at any yeah, moment. Yeah. It's it's yeah, probably yeah. gonna happen at some point. Um, what what is Nutella's business model now? Um, like what are, what are you selling?
1: Yeah. So we sell turbines. So we sell these fish safe, efficient turbines directly to customers. Our customers are generally utilities who own. So there's basically for us, the first market that we're selling into are old, smaller hydropower plants across the U.S. and Canada and also now in Europe, where um, they just need new turbines and are also often going through a process of upgrading their environmental, um, uh, performance, right. So, so how they allow fish and, and manage around fish and water and et cetera. Um, so we're selling turbines directly to, the, to that group of customers. Um, we are also, uh, we also about a year, two years ago, oh, two and a half years ago now, um, started to you know realized because as we're working with customers in, in the hydrospace, one of the big things, um, overall is that, Um, hydro is under, hydro has been around for a long time, you know, decades to a century in some cases. Um, But the way hydro, even just the existing fleet, so there's 100 gigawatts in the US of existing hydro, how that existing fleet is being called upon to dispatch as we have more intermittent renewables on the grid is changing. And at the same time with climate change, the water patterns are changing as well. And so we saw an opportunity to kind of provide a better a set of better tools, decision support tools to the hydropower industry at large around water, like water forecasts, leveraging machine learning, satellite imagery, and hydrology. The interesting thing on the software side is that there are a lot of other industry verticals that need better water data. And so on the software side, we're also selling some of those products to other um, non-hydro folks as well.
2: So You were born and raised in uh, Justin, Texas, which is a tiny town of 4,000 people outside of Dallas in a log cabin that your dad built from logs that he hauled from Arkansas. Um, And along with having the skills to build a log cabin, your dad was an inventor and a doctor and a sailor and a pilot and a farmer. (laughs) Um, And while you were growing up, your mom worked uh, as a flight attendant on weekends and went to college during the week. You founded Nutell with your brother Abe in 2009, based on technology that um, your father actually invented during the energy crisis in the late 1970s and early 80s. So I'm really curious to hear about what your upbringing was like and how did it influence your direction.
1: Yeah, it's a uh, it was it was certainly like probably a unique upbringing, as you could imagine. Um, the yeah, uh, you know, so I so I think one of the things that was embedded in in how I grew up, how even I grew up that, you know, definitely has shaped my worldview and the things I'm passionate about working on, um, you know, c- comes directly from like, just to give a couple examples. So like we didn't have, we had, um, we were in Texas in North Texas, summers get quite warm there. And, um, But my dad was very against, you know, wasting energy running, for example, the air conditioner too much. And so his way to address this was we, he installed a very large whole house fan. And so the routine every single summer day was in the evening, we would open up all the windows, turn on the fan, fan would run all night. And then first thing in the morning at like 5am, often it felt like we would get up and then close all the windows, close all the window shades. And if you did that, like we would get through most summer days without having to run the air conditioner. And um, and it's just he was he was somebody who like I remember sitting down at the dining table, like talking about climate change and greenhouse, you know, like CO2 is a greenhouse gas. And what does that mean? And uh like, I, I don't know, it's probably like eight or nine. And I and, and I remember he would he like the way he would sum it up was like climate change is basically hotter, wetter, colder, drier. And it's interesting because that's something that we're, we're seeing now. And like the way we talk about climate change is much more now nuanced around the fact that it's changes in what happens with water and water patterns. Some places we're getting more, some places we're getting less, the frequency is changing. Um, and, and it's that variability that um, at its core and how climate change relates to water that then has kind of Anyhow, there's many anecdotes I can give, but that's just, you know, a couple that help tie together. So it was like this constant environment of like working on things um, and 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 then like always combined with like learning. Like, I don't know. Dad couldn't walk past anything without explaining why, why it worked or didn't work or what was involved in, you know,
2: yeah, why things are the way they are. So I know that you brainstormed Natel's early business plan while at MIT and you pitched it in this competition this business plan competition in 1998 you were one of 10 finalists you got thousand um, dollars but after graduating you you didn't pursue um, the idea of Natel at the time instead you went to work at Accenture so I'm curious what did you learn at Accenture and and what brought you there? The path was when I was looking for
1: a job the coming out of school, the Well, doing that business plan in the 10K competition at the time in 98 was eye opening to me in terms of like how little I knew about the energy industry. And at that point, for a lot of folks today who've grown up in a world where everything about the energy industry is easily accessible online, like at that point, I was literally going to the Sloan Business School library to look up like what a wholesale power market is and what are power rates and etc. Um and so coming out of out of that I was like okay I think I want to go into you know something where I can start to learn more about you know one hand it was like I'd love to learn more about the utility industry and the other was just I want to learn more about business and get a little bit more exposure and so Accenture was kind of a it wasn't a sure thing that I'd be able to work in the utility practice there, but it was of the options that I, you know, had at the time. It it was like the best path to go and get a little bit broader exposure to both business, in general, and in particular the utility um, practice. So.
2: And then after three, so you were at Accenture for about three years, um, you got an offer from your last Accenture client, which was Constellation Energy. And so you ended up working with their commercial team, Um, you valued power generation assets and managed the revenue and risk surrounding them, surrounding those assets. Um, And there were a few others of you at Constellation who ended up spinning out a hedge fund uh, based on your work there that was eventually then acquired by Credit Suisse. Um, so what was the work that you were doing? What made it so valuable? And then what did it look like when you joined Credit Suisse?
1: Yeah, so there were a group of us who were doing, so this was like 2004-ish time frame, 2003-2004. And for folks who've you know, been in energy for that, you know, since then, like, if you remember, like, we had a couple big hurricanes come through, um, in those years. And in particular, one of them took a bunch of production offline in the Gulf gas production offline in the Gulf, um, right at a time when we were headed into a cold New England winter with gas storage levels pretty low. And so, um, what that meant was that gas prices went pretty high and, um, and anyhow, we had done a lot of work around figuring out how to um, use weather derivatives. Like the core of our work and this team at Constellation was a lot of our work was focused on could we uh, find new ways to hedge physical, particularly variable load risk around physical assets. And because variable load risk is driven by temperature excursions, either things are when things are really hot right. Or when things are really cold, that's when we get our big spikes in, in energy demand and for either heating or cooling load. And so we then developed some interesting ways to look at weather derivatives to, um, to kind of like chop off, right. those the, the variable, um, spikes, you know, that, that come from those temperature excursions. And, and so then we were well positioned as we went into this, like, you know, issue in the, around natural gas and storage levels, um, and that kind of sparked some ideas around. Okay, well, could we take this and actually create more like just pure trading strategies? Trading NYMEX natural gas, which is a well, is a a, con- a commodity contract that can be be traded, um, and uh, more, more in a more straightforward way as opposed to having like a bunch of negotiated one off contracts and weather derivatives, which also are kind of st- maybe not standardized, but you can go and get them quoted. Um, so we developed some strategies around that. Decided to go and try to you know do that pretty quickly got an offer to go in-house to Credit Suisse. And, um, and that was because at that time all the banks were getting into commodities. There was a big rush of banks into commodities. And, um, then so we were just, we were, we had developed some interesting methods for, for creating cross commodity trading strategies, basically. Um, and that was the basis for, for going, getting that going. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it's interesting to see how that flows through like to today, you know. Again, all of the what seemed in some ways maybe like disparate experiences, right? More just like financially trading things, but at the end of the day, a lot of the conundrums around how you value how how you want to position assets so that they have value in an energy market. You know, on one hand, we have to think about the climate, the impact side, but there's also just pure like what are the energy products that are needed and valued? And how are they valued? um, So that you can can actually build assets that are going to generate return?
2: Yeah, how how did the work in carbon trading inform your thoughts on renewable energy and climate? Did it? Did it steer you towards that work? And if so, why and how?
1: I mean, it was a bit of, it was a lot of probably luck. Like when, when I, you know, we got to Credit Suisse, it was 04, and we were just headed into the start of the phase one of the emissions trading scheme, which was 05 through 07. And, uh, and so it had been something I'd been following just because of following climate related things for a long time. And, uh, and so we were, I was able to convince the bank to go in, do a an early transaction. We were, it was part luck, but, you know, part, part smarts, but also, you know, decent amount of luck too. And, um, and so we made money, uh, on that early trade. And then that allowed us to like actually get a, get, you know, establish a, a practice around the carbon side. Um, that was super interesting. Like we were, uh, you know, the market was really driven in those days by a combination of the EU emissions trading scheme as the, um, kind of, um, regulator of the market demand. Um, and then a, a lot of this was basically bringing in offsets under the Kyoto protocol, um, from developing countries, projects done in developing countries that would reduce or offset or, or avoid emissions. And then use those for utilities and emitters in Europe to meet their compliance obligations at a more cost effective way. Super interesting. Learned a lot. Worked on, you know, transactions around projects in probably 15 different countries around the world and, cro- you know, probably covering about 10 different technology types. Um, all that was really, really fun and fascinating. I learned a ton. I think um, for me, the the tie to what I needed to do, kind of where, where I started to become less satisfied was simply a lot of that was happening on the edge particularly in the absence of a successor to the Kyoto protocol and the ability of the US like particularly like the US stepping up to the plate to actually commit in a you know material way to drive emissions reductions um it just felt like you know i needed to go and work in renewables directly because if we can start to move the needle you know move the needle directly in renewables we can drive infrastructure change and at the end of the day this is a battle about infrastructure change (laughs) and uh it's yeah um so it was it was fun i learned a lot but it was kind of like not quite i wanted to get closer to the problem and until there's a a compliance driven carbon market more broadly um renewables was the clearer way to do that
2: um so it sounds like that led, you, that led you to Nattel In 2009, you started Nattel in the midst of the climate crisis, which I'm really curious about the timing there. Um, you first focused on irrigation projects, uh, which are smaller and have an easier regulatory framework. And then at the beginning um, uh, of Natel, uh your brother Abe, uh, he built the systems. Your dad was installing them uh, and you got the grants and we're doing the fundraising and making the permits happen. Um, so yeah, ultimately, tell us about you deciding to leave the financial world, not just to take a new job, but to actually start Natal. Um, and what was it like in those very early days with with this being a family affair with your brother and your dad?
1: It was, uh, so Abe and dad and I had been talking for probably several years prior about, you know when is it gonna be a, a good time to like try to do something? And I think we were both, we were all focused on trying to do something in hydro. And that may have seemed totally incongruous at the time, um, because of course, you know, there was mo- more focus in wind and solar. Hydro has been around for a hundred years. And, you know, frankly, like the year we started Natel was like, I think right the year right after the DOE had shut down the water power program. <laughs> and so, and then like we did a bunch of we went into NHA, the National Hydropower Association and said, Hey, like there is real innovative new stuff to do. And we went into the DOE and said that, and then they reinstated the program, not just because of us, but I mean, the, the industry, it was That's kind of amazing. A wa- it was a wake up call for the industry that, Hey, like if you actually like, like you do really need to, to think about where this could go. Um, and I, and, and so, so for us, like hydro was always the place we wanted to focus because it kind of knits all these themes together. Climate change is water change. It sits at the water energy nexus and it's, if we think about a transition to a zero carbon grid, hydro has the ability to be very complementary to wind and solar. The problems with hydro are environmental performance and cost, so we were focused on how do you, you know so that's why like we focused in the space um, and and so when two thousand nine rolled around, it was kind of like just made it it just kind of timing wise made sense for all for particularly for Abe and I to go and take a flyer doing this. And while it might sound crazy to do that in the depths of the recession, um, the flip side is like, we were able to win one of the ARA grants coming out of the, you know, round of stimulus that, that was done. Um, and that helped us kick things off. And we were fortunate again, a little bit of its luck. We were fortunate to get a first site in Arizona, in an irrigation canal in Arizona lined up, and so it allowed us like to win the grant, get a little bit of a dish of outside seed money. We, we, had, you know, we were able to put in a little bit ourselves, and then that and then pretty quickly, like within six months, we got that first unit in the ground in this irrigation um, uh, canal in Arizona. And um, And so in some, in some ways, yes, it was a pretty hard environment, but it also frankly like allowed us to chip away at a few things a little bit under the radar. At the end of the day, we want to make very large projects at scale. But if you try to do that right out of the gate, like, you're trying to solve a tech problem and a deployment problem all at the same time. And so we had to, like, you know,
2: break things into pieces that we could tackle bit by bit. Yeah. As far as just the resources you had to tackle those those projects, what did that look like? Like, you got this grant, but I think one of the biggest fears that a lot of people have around the idea of starting a company is just can I pay myself am I not gonna be able to pay myself for how long like how much financial risk can I take like what was that like for you especially given that this was something you were doing with family what did that look like like were you okay given the grant money was it enough um we spent all that grant money or all
1: the majority of it on actually getting the projects done. Right. Like we use very little bit to actually pay ourselves. Um, and that's, I think anybody who's gone through that, you, you often are in that dynamic because you're all the, particularly in hardware, your trade-off is always, do you pay, do you like, you, you've got to spend money on physical stuff in order to make progress. And so, yeah. Um, the The bottom line is it was, we didn't pay ourselves very much money and we, you know, so, so, but we set out some specific, specific things we needed to prove, like start to start to tackle, um, in terms of where, like, both on the technology side, like what is the technology that can tackle these two problems of cost and environmental performance um how do we think about that how do we characterize like what are the thing what what were the th- things we need to solve right to actually from a technology perspective address those two challenges turn that into a product and then on the business side or the market side who are the customers what are the markets to which that product or products is going to go and how do we you know because permitting at the end of the day for all of the deployment of this stuff you have to go through permitting how how can we map a, a trajectory through that um in a way that is manageable, where we can have results in the nearer term while still being on a trajectory that enables the big picture ultimate vision.
2: Um speaking of the the development of the technology and, and how it can address those two challenges, what makes Natel's design unique and low impact? And I guess maybe two, there's two iterations of that. There's there's the original design and the new design. Um, so maybe tell us about the original design.
1: Yeah. So so from that, the original, um, uh, uh, concept was, we just, we went very out of the box. Um, we developed a linear machine, um, or, which has a linear powertrain, which, you know, without getting into a ton of detail, it's just, is, instead of having a single, having my blades like on, on a wind turbine, you know, moving around a single central shaft, we created this, we stretched it into a, a linear powertrain. And, um, and there were some reasons for doing that with respect to how, um, so a couple of the thesis points were instead of building, harnessing hydropower, conventional hydropower captures energy across a watershed by generally building a large dam. And then that integrates all the slope across that watershed in one big step. It's like jumping off the roof of the building to get to the ground floor. So part of the thesis was go distributed, walk down the stairs. So go to, you're not going to build big dams anymore. And um, that has savings on civil works right off the bat because civil works go up roughly as the cube of height of a civil structure, and so um, so that's kind of one step. But then the question was, what's the right tech that actually enables each of these distributed steps to be low cost and again deliver um, fish safe performance? So that led us initially again to this very out of the box thinking around what a machine would look like to do that. And the reason why in Hydro you start with the machine is because in hydropower your choice of turbine defines the landscape of civil works that you're going to work in. So once you've picked your turbine, you have then a series of requirements about how that turbine has to be installed that will define your life <laughs> with respect to the rest of the plant design, which then defines cost and it defines permitting. There's just a whole bunch of stuff that flows from that. So starting at the turbine makes sense from if you want to move the needle on everything else. Um, that, was gen- that was like... Yeah, idea one, and we made. There were two things we had to solve to get idea one success to success, and one was the that we could make fish safe, efficient blades, and the second was that we could make an efficient, reliable, long life powertrain, linear powertrain. We made really good progress on the former, and uh, like got to where we had really good tools and the ability to characterize and design fish safe and efficient um, blade shapes. But on the powertrain, it's a big engineering problem. And frankly, it just, we were chipping away, making progress. Um, But it is a big engineering problem. Um, We haven't built, there aren't a lot of examples out there in the world today of at scale, um, efficient, linear, cost-effective powertrains. And so, um, you know, basically about a couple years ago, two years, a year and a half ago now, um, we we basically, Abe and I sat down and was like, We've we're making progress, but frankly, I'm not sure if we're gonna get there in time relative to the other thing that is my job, which is fundraising. And for anybody who's, you know, managing this, it's the question of like, I gotta raise money and I gotta get a product market and I've got to make those things all match up. And so um that uh sent basically us back to the drawing board and really Abe and and we just started asking questions like, "Is there another way that we could do this? Like, achieve the end goal? Go back to the problem, and with everything that we've learned, like, is there is there a faster way for us to create a product that does those things?" And the answer was yes. And so, bottom line is, is that where we are now is we've taken all that information and knowledge and experience now on fish-safe, efficient blade shapes, and we've put it on a rotary powertrain. And so, um, and so that then basically went from an idea on paper in January of 2019 to 85 KW scale, fully tested, power curve over 90, 91%, um, verified by an independent in- engineer in June of 2019. So literally like five months from, from like really starting work on that to 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 tested built machine with results. We had completed testing with one of the nation's leading fish laboratories by uh, July, August, um, of 2019 at the megawatt blade scale, proving over 99% safe fish passage. And then we got the first turbine installed in December of 2019. And it's been running now for coming up four and a half months or so at like 98% availability, 98, 99% commercial reliability or availability, um, so, the moral of the story is like we did a lot of work figuring out, putting all these things together, understanding and and then kind of realized there was a way for us to solve like pivot around kind of this problem that was taking up a ton of our time and effort, but was was like kind of off in this other space, whereas like the thing we really needed to solve was fish safe, performant, you know efficient um fish safe compact turbines.
2: What 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 is the takeaway for other entrepreneurs that are struggling, particularly with hardware, if they're kind of set on doing it a particular way, but there's there are a number of ways to get the outcome? What would you say to them if they're in the position you were in a few years ago when you were still working on the linear powertrain?
1: I think that it is to stay focused on the problem you're trying to solve, right? Like technology is a means to solve the problem, right? I think it's just really important to not be afraid to revisit your core problem that you're trying to solve. And then to think about if what you're what you're doing, the technology that you're working on is, is truly the best thing for solving that problem. Um, it's really easy to get caught up in solving all the engineering problems that you have to solve, right? To make a technology into a product. And those are all problems which you can be cranking away on and making great progress and et cetera. But those are actually not the, like, you know, they may not, you can have small successes there, but yet still have a failure on the actual big problem you're trying to solve. So you have to like constantly pay attention and think, think about those, you know, that revisiting your main problem.
0: This is the moment we take a very brief intermission and talk about our supporter of the show, SunGrow. When SunGrow realized the severity of the COVID-19 outbreak, it put together a task force to make sure it had quick decision-making in the face of uncertainty. It prioritized the safety of employees by investing in measures to protect its factory workers from infection, and SunGrow is collaborating closely with suppliers and customers to ensure it can deliver inverter solutions safely and on schedule to project developers around the world. As a leading supplier of solar inverters in the U.S., SunGrow has leveraged logistics networks across the country to distribute face masks to communities in need. To learn more about SunGrow's products and its efforts during COVID-19, go to sungrowpower.com.
2: Um, So I know before you made this big switch to to the new powertrain design in 2015, you had made this deal with Apple for an irrigation center for them in Oregon, which helped you raise more capital. Um, And you've said that you weren't ambitious enough in your fundraising and you you felt uh, just constantly capital constrained, which I know is a very familiar problem, too founders, and, and especially now in light of COVID and, and how challenging it is to raise money. So I'm curious, what was the early fundraising process and customer acquisition journey like? And and would you have done anything differently, um, especially as it relates to fundraising and feeling that that capital constraint?
1: One would always love to have more money, um, for sure, right? It, it's it would have. So it's a, it's a hard one, because it's, 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 there's no counterfactual (laughs) by definition as we live life. There's no counterfactual to compare easy, uh, easily. Um, so, uh, I think that for us, the fundraising has always been a challenge. Like that's just been, you know, the constant, constant reality of our existence for, has been, you know, managing around capital. Um, and figuring out how to stretch the capital that we're able to get as far as we can. Um, I think that the, the thing that was important out of the getting that deal done with Apple uh, on that project deployment up in Oregon was that it it helped. It actually gave us a really important window into what is still very much an ongoing trend today, which is demand from certain corporates, particularly data centers, but as an example, but they're kind of one of the leading examples of new demand for very constant power. Right. And, and it, so it was a window for us into that, which was really important and useful because it helped, it helped us start to build kind of the additional data sets around and thought processes around how, how hydropower can be, 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 how you can start to think about hydro as the backbone of a reliable renewable grid, right? As we're transitioning to a true zero carbon grid, um, it one of, and we're going to need several technologies to, you know, fully get there. But um, so that was one. Second it was certainly it was useful for us, obviously on the capital side. Um, but I'm not sure. Like on one hand, there's a part of me that wishes we'd, ra- you know, been a little bit more ambitious at that time, coming off of that and raised more. But the flip side is, is that <sighs> which I think you just have to always acknowledge is that potentially we wouldn't have pivoted, like, like the question becomes, would we have pivoted sooner or later, et cetera. Um, and I think the the data set we have now is that the pivot was exactly what we needed to do. Right. And so if anything, the question becomes like, okay, could we have pivoted earlier? Well, you know, again, there's no, it's hard to, hard to say that. So I think, I think the, um, I think the things that are very true and important are that I think it's really important to be, like, we've been able to make this pivot because we have an amazing group of investors who are backing us and we have a really great, you know, all, you know who've, who've been involved with us and working with us for a very long time in some cases um, as investors and also at the board. And, you know, when we made that pivot in 2019, right, like we had this design, Abe and I've been working on this, and... You know, in January, 2019, we're basically like, we'd finally, we'd fully convinced ourselves from like November of 2018 through January, 2019, we fully convinced ourselves like, this is what we need to do. But then we have to go to the board and then we have to go to the team and say, okay, like, you know what guys, we've been working on this, but we just, we think that actually we need to reconfigure this. And, and, and again, the problem remains the same, exactly the same, but the way we're going to solve that problem looks a little different. And that's hard, um, to do. Yeah, probably one of the more nerve wracking things that I've ever done. Um, And, and I think getting through that is a, is a testament to being trans, being straightforward and transparent with your invest, like if your investors are partners as well in what you're doing, I mean, there's always a tension, of course, but at the end of the day, like, you know, we're, we're, we're all working in some ways, we're all on the same side, working to make successful, transformative businesses that will tackle this problem for the long term. And so I think it's always important to keep that in mind. Gotcha.
2: And I imagine the software work is continuing through the impacts of the coronavirus. But how is it impacting the hardware development? Like, how's the team? I know you just closed this round, which really good timing to have closed pre shelter in place. Um, but yeah, how 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 is it affecting you? And And what would you share for other people that are in a similar position, so we have one project in construction. So we installed the the first
1: plant at the end of the year in December, and like I said, that's been running. That was great. Um, we are in construction. Uh, we we started construction in January on a second project, um, and that project was one where we were, you know, definitely the question was like, you know, coronavirus. How do we how do we manage around coronavirus? Our target is to install that, commission it in Q three this year. Um, we basically. Started paying attention for a couple reasons to the long poles in the tent, so to speak, in that in that project schedule in early February, and we basically we've been fortunate. We've seen a like a small amount of slippage, um, rel- like in terms of when we think we'll be able to commission that um, plant, but we've largely stayed. We've been largely able to avoid any sub- huge delays from um, coronavirus. I do think that. Um, an important milestone for us was to get all the in-water work that needed to be complete by the end of March, complete by the end of March. And that happened. And so that was like a very big milestone for us to clear, which really de-risks the rest of the thing. So the bottom line is, is I think being proactive. I, I, so we started planning early. We were paying attention to coronavirus pretty early as a issue that we needed to manage around. And then we've been in really close communication and contact with the folks, our vendors in our supply chain. Um, and... I think that as we move into the next phase, frankly, I think the, this next phase over the next 12 to 24 months will be where things get more interesting because as, as we start to loosen up or as, as the shelter in place rules start to be restricted, people start traveling again, there's a lot more complicated decision-making to be made around how do you keep you know your team safe? How do we keep you know the folks that we're working with, our vendors, our customers safe, but yet still deliver on obligation, like on these things that we want to get built in the ground? And, when we don't, and it's why testing, I don't want to go off on a coronavirus, like testing is really important, you know, uh, because it's like the tool that we have to start to like put some data around the decision making over the next 12 months or so, 12 to 24 months. Um, and, you know, and that's going to be a moving, you know, continually evolving target, obviously, over
2: the next 12 to 24 months. You know, before the shelter in place and all that happened, you closed this eleven million dollar uh, series B round with Schneider Electric Ventures and Breakthrough Energy Ventures, and we had Kevin and and uh, Libby from Schneider and Breakthrough on earlier during our happy hour. Um, what was different about raising this round, and how do you how do you think about fundraising now relative to when you started? It was it was on the
1: cusp for like it was a it was a very much a transitional round because we we're going from. Uh, We'd started to lay down sales, uh, you know, close sales on the software side um, and establish, you know, some early track record and traction there. And on hardware, we we completed some really important milestones to solidify product release. Right. That we'd have a reliable that we'd have a product that would produce the power expected, would be fish safe. Um, Reliability was maybe less of a question because we're. It, this turbine now looks, if to a layman's eye, like a hyd- like a turbine, like a propeller, and so f- and it uses many of the things that have already been used, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of times. So, um, the the big thing for us as we go forward, and the thing that's really, really now like super exciting for us, frankly, is that we have now over the last, you know, since we've since, well you know, yeah, basically this over say the last four to six months, we have really started to hit a clip as a business. So it's one thing to be hitting milestones on the product side, which is really important and super key. It's a very different thing to start to actually like close sales and have, you know, metrics that you're like, okay, leads are coming in at the top of the funnel. We are converting deals, you know, we're shipping proposals, we're getting good traction, you know, the plant in the field is running well. It's 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 exceeding its expected power generation. The customer's happy um And, uh, and so as I look forward, I, frankly, we have a good degree of optimism and I say good simply because I think it's important to, I think it's important for everybody. And well, I think it's important for us to not be, um, dismissive of coronavirus risks. I think that it's a reality we're going to be dealing with. Um, like I said, and I think it's a reality we're going to be dealing for like 12 to 24 months, not just a couple months. Um, in in my view
2: um in all of this and you know raising millions of dollars and building your team how many are on the team now we're 45 yeah, like 45. how how did you know how to do all of this you started Natel, 10 years ago you were in your early 30s yeah h- how would you do it i feel like a lot of us feel like we're just kind of faking it until we make it and until we start to get that external validation um but yeah how'd you know how to do it
1: well, you didn't know how to do it. <laughs> like, like, I think that's the I mean, that's that's the I mean, like and un, no until you've built a business, you don't know how to do it, right? So, therefore, um, okay. So, I think I think the things that we've done well are are like we grounded ourselves in first principle. We grounded ourselves in several key principles, and we've been consistent about coming back to those principles. Like if you actually look at our business plans from two thousand nine, two thousand ten our objectives have, have actually not wavered. And, but they haven't wavered because of rigid adherence to dogma. They have not wavered because we check in consistently about, is this the right problem to solve? And to solve that problem, where do we need to be in terms of like LCUE, that kind of thing. And, and, and so it's important to keep checking it, but they haven't changed. They, they've, they've remained a very consistent, like North star around like, what are we doing? Why? Um, and, and I think if you do that, then it, then the rest of your decision-making process is more orderly. And while there are lots of things that one can't control that you can't control, you can, you can start to, to pull apart the things that you can control versus the things that you can't and organize then your work around ticking off and making progress on the things that you can control
2: Yeah, as far as things that are unexpected or things that we don't have control over, you know, the pandemic was unexpected to most of us, um, and has changed our life in a significant way. And, And with things being unexpected, I'm curious, what were the hardest moments for you? And particularly, I know that, you know, Grief is something that's been part of your life that a lot of people are experiencing now in light of the coronavirus and this kind of unexpected loss. And so, to the extent that you're willing to share, um, your experience with with your dad and his work with Natal and your partner, and and there are all these like very close intersections in your life with people you love and have lost. And so, whatever you're willing to share and and lessons that you want others to take away from what you've learned in that process, like, I, I, there's no way to sugarcoat it, right?
1: Like, loss is hard, and 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 it's very um, anyhow, so yeah, so our, so, you know, dad obviously started the company with us. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, like he basically installed the first turbine by himself, <laughs> pretty much he built it. Um, and, uh, uh, and so he worked with us, you know, through, he, he passed away, um, in 2011 and, uh, and he, uh, he was fighting lymphoma. But he was working literally with our team, like one of our engineers, um, Rodrigo, uh, who's still with us today, was like working with dad on an overhung load, like a, anyhow, an engineering problem, and um, like literally a day and a half before he passed. And I wish he was here today to see it. That was a... But he passed like there is no other way that my dad would have been, if he could have chosen how to go, it would have been along those lines. Like he wanted to be using his mind and being productive and for, you know, and he was very at peace with how that happened. I think when Corwin passed, that was, which was the next year that was, that was harder for me. It's may me seems strange and it's not, because I don't love and care, didn't love and care for my dad. My, dad's, like, my dad is, is, is a huge part of why I'm the way I am. Um, but it was, it was different because, you know, it's a person that you, you know, we, you have, you have a rhythm with, right. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, like, you know, ha, ha, because when you live with someone and they're just that close knit part of your life, like there's just a rhythm there that, that when all of a sudden that person's gone, it, everything feels like like thrown out the window, right? And you feel unmoored. I felt unmoored. And um and I think that I was fortunate with again, to a certain extent I think maybe, you know, Netel helped ground me. Like it was a thing I could focus on and work on. Um it was pretty critical for me to be like like If I were to have walked away or like, like we needed to be there, I needed to be there doing work. And that, that was helpful for, for creating some grounding again. And, uh, anyhow, bottom line is I don't have any answers. There's no, there's no simple answer. I think that for me, it was just like one step ahead of the other every single day. And then, you know, months go by and, and then finally one day I remember like I looked at a sunset and I, I, the sunset made me happy. And, like, when I had that moment of joy again, I was like, okay, okay, like, things are returning to, you know, normal.
2: Are there elements to your own leadership that have changed over the years? And and what are the moments in your life that that changed those leadership qualities or tendencies if they have changed over time? I spend a
1: lot of time thinking internally, I'm probably more introverted than extroverted. Um, but, but... But it help. But I definitely will think things through in conversation as well, and so that means I like put things out there that are not fully formed. You know, certainly that or they might not be fully formed. Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. Um, my brother is very precise. He think and and in general will not say things until they are fully formed. And it's a wonderful like thing. But it but from a leadership and from a like how we work together perspective like we had to figure that out early on right because because in you know uh yeah so that was one one challenge and that i also had to to think about how to adjust a bit uh and and in. because the other thing i've realized is that by virtue of having the title ceo one's words carry more weight <laughs> even even when like they might just be in the thought you know in the thinking stages and so i think for me um, you know, finding ways to balance some of that a little bit more. Um, so toning it down, trying to rein in and organize my, my thought, um, my thoughts before they become words has been an important thing. Um, and then the other thing that I think has been really useful for me, particularly in this last year, um, and this actually came out of some coaching, some executive coaching that, um, uh, we've done is to help, because another important transition, is, as referenced earlier, like Abe and I have a capacity, like I don't think of it as any particular virtue, like we're just, we have a capacity for work that is, you know, I don't know, it's just, it's just a thing. And, um, um, but as a company grows, like early on, sure, you, you work 16 hour days or 20 hour days, and that's great. You've doubled or tripled the output. <laughs> right? When it's just a, you know, two or three of you, but as you get to, you know, a lot more people that doesn't pay off as much. Right. And so, um, and it's more important to a really important thing for me has been to focus on how to work with across the team and enable people across the team to be leaders from wherever they sit and like whatever, wherever they are. Um, and, and it's hard, like I'm not, um, it's something that's a continue continued like journey for me. Um, But that's been like one of the most important insights for me in terms of like thinking how to be a better like manager um, and leader.
2: Yeah. Last question before we close with our high voltage round, and that is um, founders and CEOs who are women and especially women of color in our industry are still unfortunately really rare. And so I'm curious, um, you know, for both men and women, white people and people of color who are listening, um, is there any takeaway that you'd want to share with them about your experience?
1: I think that change is accelerating, which is great. You know, it's still the case that like, I've pitched, I've been in hundreds of pitches at this point. And I don't know, maybe maybe a percent or two. <laughs> it's like a really low number of, you know, those pitches have really involved people like women, um, women of color. For me personally, I have not, I have found it productive to focus, to not focus on that and instead to focus on the business are we grounded in the right principles? Are we like building the right thing? Are we focused on the right objectives? I think that the world is changing. So each of us bears our part to go out there and like help continue to push that ball forward um, and continue to help make that change happen. Um, it gives me a lot of hope as I look forward, like my brother has two daughters and um, and they are awesome. And and so like I am filled with a ton of hope and optimism looking forward because I think that the world that they will be in will be a lot better um, versus, and they won't face like, I've never faced explicit discrimination, but, but implicit, sure. I find it comforting to, to ground myself in the fact that um, there is no guarantee of success. The only thing I can control is what I'm actually doing. Do I think I'm doing the right thing? And if so, like, that's all I can control.
2: Well said. All right, high voltage round, uh, quick questions, really quick answers, like a few words per answer. Um, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? I would be a dolphin. Uh, I love the water. <laughs> Dolphins are awesome. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be?
1: Uh, I would be a, I would have a flower shop. I would have a combo, like um, cafe, bakery, flower shop with a little bookshop
2: alongside. So i Those can like, like four
1: other favorite things.
2: <laughs> uh, other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? My parents, mom, and dad both.
1: Um, and my dad was the accelerator, and my mom was the break in the relationship. And like, they both have given me things that are really important in terms of how I look forward. But, and then the flips, then the, the other part of it is my brother. Like, I wouldn't be here. We would not have what we have today, like, without me Like, the entire pivot, all that stuff I talked about, that was him.
2: Uh, what is your worst trait? I can be
1: kind of impulsive and I think I think about things a lot. <laughs> so I think, I think like decision decisions are, are like, you know, there's, there's a constant question of like where to prioritize. So I think I, I, I spend time and it's easy for me to like auger into details that, and, and, and so I constantly have to like balance the. That, that's the, that's a trait, like perseverating on things that aren't actually like the most important thing. I have to like pull myself out of that.
2: And to close, finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because?
1: Leadership or lack thereof.
2: Success is?
1: Success is waking up every day, feeling like, like looking for, waking up every day, looking forward to what I'm going to do.
2: If I could have done one thing differently, I would have. That's a
1: that's a question. So I don't believe in regret. So the, the, the that's my answer to that question. I think feel like you live one life and you make mistakes, but you learn from them. But regretting them is a waste of time.
2: Last question to build a successful startup. What it takes is persistence. I'm sorry, there's not a roaring thunderous applause for you as there should be, but I will give my own and thank you for being on What It Takes.
1: Thank you. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Awesome. See you soon. Bye. Bye.
0: All right. That marks the end of another edition of What It Takes. Thanks as always to Powerhouse for their partnership on this series and keeping it going while everyone is stuck in their homes. Go to powerhouse.fund for more information on future events. We also have a live energy gang coming up, again, live online, on June 9th. So you can register for that for free, and that's sure to be another good conversation. So we we hope you'll join the gang for that. We also have a live interchange on June 24th. Again, that's also free. Um, Powerhouse is holding another one of these What It Takes... Uh, events as well on June 11th. And they're going to have an interview with Bloomberg New Energy Finance founder Michael Liebrich. So I don't know how long this thing's going to last. But if you're stuck in your home, you've got three good live shows there to sign up for. The gang is back next week. I'm Stephen Lacey. Thanks for being here. We'll talk to you soon.